We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app six weeks away from the all-important midterm elections in the u.s and there is one thing most americans likely agree on our political system is in trauma we're willing to risk our lives do you understand? Tens of thousands of people that were outside the Capitol climbed onto the scaffolding that's out in front of the Capitol where the inauguration will take place. The partisan divide in our country today looks like the Grand Canyon and the anger on display at the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. We fear that it is more than an outlier, that it is uh, likely a window into our future or possibly a window into our future. But democracy held, didn't it? The system is under extraordinary strain. Um, And so the fact that it hasn't kind of completely imploded in one big flash, um, I don't think should be cause for comfort. This week on 880 In-Depth, how did politics get so broken? Is winning more important than anything else? And can it be fixed? When politics becomes more psychological, it becomes more volatile. And with volatility comes danger. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Michael Wallace. The authors of a new book called The Big Truth say that the 2020 election was the most secure, verifiable, and transparent in American history. So why then are some people not convinced? The stakes are so high, denialism becomes an acceptable part of political discourse, even if there's no factual basis for it at all, because it's not about underlying facts. It's about a deeper psychological sense of self and connection to the American story. He is Major Garrett, CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent, along with David Becker, one of the nation's foremost experts on election integrity. They authored the new book called The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Both men visited our New York studios this past week to talk about the upcoming election and their work on the new book with WCBS News anchor Wayne Cabot. We all, all three of us, and people listening, grew up in an era where we felt confidence in the knowledge and secure in the knowledge that we lived in a country that had a strong, robust democracy. And no matter what was going on, no matter what political skirmishes and fights were happening, we were secure in our country being strong. Something changed. People who are growing up now no longer have that feeling. And those of us who are older are questioning whether that can continue. And I guess that's the whole impetus of your book. So what changed? Uh, Whichever one of you wants to take that question first, what changed from us being secure to being nervous? Well, let's also remind ourselves of some of the struggles our country has gone through to 
make our aspirational words about democracy actually real. My formative memories as a child, I grew up in the 60s, I was born in 1962, was watching on television the civil rights struggle in our country, where we had to actually prove that we meant what our founding documents said, that all men are created equal and access to voting was in fact going to be universally distributed. That was a huge struggle in this country. It's lived in the 50s vividly on television, went through the 60s, and I remember in the late 60s seeing ultimately it being achieved, and one of its greatest rhetorical spokespersons, Dr. Martin Luther King, assassinated. A huge tragedy for our country. So the struggle over access to voting and democracy and what it means and where it means what it says has run through our country. But to your most important question, what's happened now is the sense that We are estranged from each other politically in ways I think are different. We tend to view political disagreements much more as a primal sort of threat to ourselves. We identify disagreements in politics as almost existential. Like if the other side wins, not only am I going to be disappointed, but my country may disappear. And the stakes feel so high that we find ourselves psychologically investing in things that we wouldn't otherwise invest in. And that's what the big lie is all about. People think that if Democrats or socialists or communists or whatever the label of the day is win, not only will they lose, they'll lose everything they understand about America. So the stakes are so high, denialism becomes an acceptable part of political discourse, even if there's no factual basis for it at all, because it's not about underlying facts. It's about a deeper psychological sense of self and connection to the American story. And that what is what feels to me completely different about the political environment we're in now. David, I think a lot of us didn't think this could happen in this country, in the U.S. of A. Uh, and it went from, as you have pointed out, the hypothetical to the real. Um, what do you mean by the fact that it's gone from from hypothetical and January 6th I guess is is probably the the best example was January 6th more than an outlier well I think what major and I both think is we fear that it is more than an outlier that it is uh, likely a window into our future or possibly a window into our future given that we now have for the first time in American history a losing presidential candidate who has invested himself in lying to his own supporters about the truth about the election And that's going on now for almost 700 days. It actually predates the election. He was delegitimizing uh, things like mail voting, saying elections were rigged, going way, way back, all the way back to 2012 at least. Um, But we have had close elections in the past, close presidential elections in the past. Elections decided by one state by a very narrow margin. 1960, the sitting vice president, Vice President Nixon, conceded for the good of the country. Really, one state, Illinois, drove that election. 2000, famously, one state decided by 537 votes, Florida, decided the outcome of an election the Supreme Court ultimately had to rule. And the sitting vice president, Vice President Gore, who was going to preside over the January 6th joint session, conceded and accepted the results, accepted the rule of law. For the first time in American history, we had an election 2020 where that didn't happen. And what's really startling is... This wasn't a particularly close election. It was decided by a minimum of three states, by 7 million votes in the popular vote, 
we had more security and integrity around this election, more judicial review of the rules and the results than ever before, and yet these lies persist and are driving a large portion of the former president's party. Well, you guys are speaking in facts, although it's facts as I perceive them. Others have alternative facts or alternate facts. How do we bridge that? I mean, when you simply could solve arguments by fact-checking, it was a lot easier. No longer can we agree on what the basic set of facts are. I just don't know really how we go forward and whether or not we will enter into uh, some kind of a, a civil war, which, Major, you say would not be a bloody civil war, but a procedural civil war, which I find fascinating. Yes, we envision, David and I, or we hold up for the reader to take on board a possible scenario in America where we pull apart from each other gradually, not by the bullet or the bayonet, but by paper and rhetoric and decisions that states make. States becoming more and more alienated from one another, states erecting barriers to travel to other states, and the sense of union dissolving before our very eyes. Look, there are examples of that already happening. Look at the movement of asylum seekers from one state to another, because that state is so different than my state. I feel so alienated from my state and that state that we have almost nothing in common. Or questions about access to abortion and if states are going to recognize the legal authorities in another state. These tensions are already visible, quite separate from a disagreement over how an election was conducted in a particular state. And let's be honest with ourselves. If in 2022, this upcoming midterm election, it's really close in terms of control of Congress, or in the 2024 election, if it's really close in terms of the presidency, don't kid yourself. States that feel that alienated from one another, having in 2020 baselessly sued one another over the conduct of their elections, could just pull apart and say, you're no longer legitimate. You're no longer part of the American experiment as this state understands it. These things are very real. They are part of our conversation now in ways they never were before. And when you talk about things like dissolution of the union, guess what? You make it easier for it to happen. So, gentlemen, what do we need? An Abraham Lincoln? Well, I think one of the things we've seen is um, – is is that we've got a lot of Abraham Lincolns actually in this country, people who have political courage, people who are willing to speak the truth to their own voters and pay a price. Um, we talk often about the principles in the Constitution, and they're very, very important, but the Constitution is a piece of parchment. And it relies upon a mutual agreement amongst all of us as citizens to engage in good faith and goodwill towards each other and uphold its principles. And we saw in the period of time from November 3rd, 2020 to January 20th, 2021, uh, a complete breakdown of that um, from the losing president who happened to be occupying the White House, an attempt to, um, to corrupt the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, the FBI and others, uh, bring, him in, bring them into a, a conspiracy to attempt a coup. Um, these things largely drove Major and I to wrote the, write the book that we did. Um, but it was men and women of both parties 
who stood up to that. I mean, it's not just the Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's and of course, and Mitt Romney's who stood up, but it was also the Brad Raffensperger's in Georgia. It was also Bill Gates uh, in Arizona. It was also Al Schmidt in Philadelphia. We talk about some of these people, people who were the professional election administrators who said, we are going to run a secure, transparent and verified election no matter what the outcome, and we are not gonna put our thumbs on the scale. I think. We have that raw material here in the United States still. It's what gives Major and I optimism. Um, But we need to reinforce it for sure. And one of the things that I think we're beginning to see that gives me hope is that many of the individuals who sought to corrupt our process, who uh, for whom there was no line they would not cross, there is some accountability that seems to be coming for that. There were apparently, I think, laws broken, and those people should be investigated, prosecuted, and probably convicted. And hopefully we'll see that uh, in the coming months and years. That accountability that you're referring to. Uh, in your book, I'm sure you delved into history and you know uh, frauds being exposed, lies being exposed. You think of Senator McCarthy in the 1950s and that, that collapsed from under him. At least we think we think it did. There are some today who still kind of <laughs> embrace his thinking. Uh, so do you get a sense of comfort from looking into history? Sure. Um, And I want to go back to the reference at the beginning of our conversation to the 1960s, which was an incredibly turbulent time in American history, deeply turbulent. We had disagreements about civil rights and clashes in the streets. People were battered and bruised and bloodied over that. We had deep disagreements and mass protests in capitals all over the country, but at the Washington, in Washington, our nation's capital, many, many times, anti-war protests. There was a movement to surround the Pentagon in the anti-war movement and to enter that building. People forget about that. Like the January 6th was the only time any building in the federal architecture of Washington, D.C. was ever trespassed upon. No, the Pentagon was trespassed upon by anti-war protesters, uh, about 100,000 of them. So in the 60s, we were riven. We were divided. I know my parents thought the country was coming apart at the seams. So we've had difficult times. Of course, we had a civil war. We had a Great Depression where the entire idea of America and its economic bounty was under deep scrutiny and questioned by many of America, many Americans. So we've had tough patches before. This is a particularly tough patch. And as David said, it calls upon people to do some very basic things, which is if you say you love America, love it. And that requires you to take a hard loss. Democracy does not ask easy things of people who are participants in democracy. Democracy asks of you that you campaign hard and you give it your best shot and live with disappointment, believing in the arc of history that you'll get another chance in the next election. That's all we ask. That's all we ask of people. We don't ask them to abandon America. Quite to the contrary. We ask them to love America in ways they say they do. But you can't love America and stomp on and slander an election as fraudulent or a crime simply because your side didn't win. That's not the way this experiment continues. And if we find ourselves in a place where that becomes a common part of the dialogue, it's just another stratagem on the chessboard? No, it's not. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours 
and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. America has most certainly navigated other crises before, from writing the Constitution, the Civil War, the tumultuous 60s. America's been through tough times, but the authors both say something does feel different here, and no question the modern media landscape plays a role. Major and David, democracy demands also that we be at least somewhat informed. How can we be somewhat informed when we have a feedback loop of information that only tells us what we want to know? That has profoundly changed from what you were referencing back in the 60s when we had one mass media, which agreed generally on a set of facts. Now we don't have that anymore. What is a voter, what is an American to do? Well, that's actually one of the reasons we wrote the book was to lay out the facts and make it clear. The election deniers, and let's call them what they are, they are are supporting the loser of an election, um, want to have us play an endless game of whack-a-mole where they throw up a variety of claims, none of which have any proof, none of which any court has ever uh, substantiated. And in fact, they don't even bring them to courts anymore or to law enforcement. They don't even bother. They just put them out on social media. And these claims might be that there were bamboo ballots in, from China or there, were, uh, there was a truck full of ballots in, in Pennsylvania or there was a suitcase of ballots in, in Georgia. Um, that's not where the facts lie. We know those are all false. The facts are simple and they're this. We ran the most secure, transparent, and verified election in American history. We somehow, and when I say we, I'm mainly talking about the professionals who run elections, somehow managed the highest turnout by far in the middle of a global pandemic. And they did this because we had more paper ballots than ever before. These are verified ballots that we could go back to to audit and recount. 95% of all Americans voted on these paper ballots, including states like Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, which did not have statewide paper ballots in 2016. That was an improvement made since 2016 to 2020. Every battleground state had paper ballots. All of those states audited their ballots and confirmed that the machines uh, came to the right count. There was, there was more pre-election litigation to clarify the rules. Every campaign knew what the rules were on election day. They didn't like some of those rules, but they knew what they were. Both sides didn't like some of the rules. The Democrats didn't like the Republicans' limited uh, ballot drop boxes in states like Ohio and Texas. 
Republicans didn't like the fact that some states expanded mail voting during the pandemic. That's fine. You can disagree, but courts ruled, and we knew the rules on election day. And then over 60 courts reviewed the election results after the election. Even Trump-appointed judges confirmed those results. Trump himself had an opportunity to recount the entire state of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. He chose not to. Republicans famously did very well on the rest of the ballot. They won every swing house race. There's, there's so many positive facts about this election that show how secure it was. And of course, the election deniers don't want to address those. They don't fit the narrative. They don't allow them to f- keep the anger going, to keep the division going, and to most importantly, perhaps, keep the fundraising going, to keep grifting on the tens of millions, and you raised this point uh, really well, who don't want to hear the facts that the candidate they, they sincerely wanted to win lost. And couldn't the Democrats do the same thing? Well, this is what I would say to Trump supporters, and I've met many Trump supporters in this great city of New York, people who uh, have come stop me on the street and say, Trump's going to win. I like Trump. He's an outsider. He's got moxie. He's going to take on all these entrenched interests. And I, I heard them in 2015. I heard them in 2016. I'm sure they're still here now. And I would only say, I'm not asking you, and I would never suggest to anyone who's a supporter of former President Trump to put all that on the shelf. Don't. Those are ideas you believe in. You believe they made the country better. Keep advocating for those. But don't let that advocacy and that loyalty to former President Trump cloud your vision about what actually happened. Because if you do, you are teaching everyone in America that this one idea that we thought was universal and sacred isn't. And if you don't think your political rivals are going to mirror that behavior at some point in the future, you're kidding yourself. I would ask any Trump supporter who can hear my voice, just imagine, just for a second, just put yourself back in that elated sense of spirit you felt when President-elect Trump was announced. And what if you saw in the days after that, the Obama Justice Department suddenly launch an investigation and have someone within the Obama White House propound for President Obama a draft executive order in which President Obama's Justice Department would go to five states in this country where the election results were close and seize the ballot boxes. I ask you, as a loyal supporter of former President Trump, how would that feel to you? What would you have thought? What would you think in the future about a rival political party engaging in the same efforts to overturn an election that former President Trump did? You would find it violative of everything you understand about America. And you would be right, because it would be. And we pose that hypothetical in the book, actually. Um, It's important for us to understand these institutions are not based on whether one party or the other party is right. The institutions exist to allow both parties to compete um, for uh, and persuade the American voter. Um, That's a good thing when that happens well. Um, When a portion, and perhaps a majority, of one party prefers to live in an echo chamber where they're being fed a constant diet of lies. Um, And when it's hard to break through that so that they can see, oh, actually we didn't lose because it was stolen. We lost because our candidate was flawed. We need to reevaluate our ideas, whatever, which is what happens after every campaign. Um, That didn't happen in 2020. And our political discourse is worse off for that. And I know Trump supporters would say, oh, you guys are ignoring all the stuff that was wrong about the origins of the Russia investigation. And Trump was harassed and badgered by that. And you haven't paid any attention to that. We do in the book. 
we have a whole section about how angered Trump supporters are by what they perceive, in some cases justifiably, something that's out of kilter in the way that former President Trump has talked about or was investigated in the origins of that. I understand that. I understand it very well. I would only argue that whatever you think about that doesn't justify a deeper and more grievous assault on our democratic norms than that. That's not the answer. (laughs) The answer to something you consider to be violative of democratic norms, is it more violations of democratic norms? That is a downward spiral that is, once let loose, very difficult to reverse. Here we have two educated gentlemen in the media, uh, an institution not trusted by much of America, talking about Congress and politics, not trusted by much of America. Since politics is a reflection of our culture and our values, what are the origins of that lack of trust? How'd this start? Well, that's a big question. I would say that's a very, very big question. Um, And I think there is some fault that both parties have to take account for. I arrived in Washington in 1990, and political parties in 1990 had disagreements, but they didn't describe each other in apocalyptic terms. And certainly that began a little bit uh, when Newt Gingrich was seeking power for the House of Representatives for Republicans for the first time in 40 years. After winning that, there was a lot of clashes that seemed to get more amplified. The language tended to get more vivid. The willingness to condemn instead of disagree became more pronounced. Those tendencies both parties have lived with and intensified for fundraising purposes and for political power. And if you keep telling your supporters, as both political parties have, with greater and greater intensity over the last 20 years, this isn't a disagreement. This is about your very life and your sense of existence. People are going to absorb that. People are going to feel that it is more primal, that it is more psychological, that it is more wrapped up in their identity. And when politics becomes more psychological, it becomes more volatile. And with volatility comes danger. I, yeah, I'll just, I'll just add, I mean, one of the things that I think is often inscrutable to most Americans because they don't live elections every day like I do or like the professionals in election administration do all over the country. We rely upon tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans in every election to facilitate American democracy, to give American voters their voice. And they do a remarkable job. And we're actually doing a better job at that than ever before. We're more professional than ever before. Best practices are being shared more than ever ever before. There's more transparency and redundancy in the process than ever before. But we see, for again, for the first time in American history, a losing presidential candidate leverage the lack of understanding of this very esoteric process that we have in election administration, leverage that misunderstanding to breed doubt about that process. And so one possible fix for all of this as well is if you have doubts about this process, go volunteer to be a poll worker. You'll learn so much about the process. You'll understand why you have to show up at the polling place two hours before it opens and why you're going to stay four, five, six hours after it closes because you are checking every box with multiple people watching you. There are so many redundancies and checks and balances to make sure the count is right. And even then, the count on election night is unofficial. 
It is, there are still days and weeks after that where they're double checking multiple different ways to make sure this was all correct. Um, if there is a problem, it's always found out. It is remarkable how well our system works when we have 160 million Americans doing the same thing at the same time in a process that relies upon hundreds of thousands of volunteers. And it's remarkable. It's really a triumph of American democracy that we can do this in any election, 2020 especially so because of the pandemic. I like that idea. Volunteer, put yourself out there. It's easy to talk, easy to tweet. Yeah, and and I've come to uh, a very fundamental orientation to this question. And I would ask anyone who is dissatisfied with um, politics in America, can you spend just a little bit more time focusing less on your dissatisfaction and more on the quality of your participation? We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, and I certainly hope to have some takeaways from your new book, which will leave me feeling better than I've been feeling, along with many Americans for we the past so some yeah. time we now. We hope so too. Because it's called The Big Truth. It's Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Major Garrett, David Becker, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our Wayne Cabot. This past week, the New York Times carried a story about how a group of scholars in the U.S. wrote an open letter to Congress calling for sweeping changes to federal elections. These political scientists think there is merit in taking a look at reforming the way America holds federal elections and chooses federal representatives. As the Times suggests, such an overhaul would be a heavy lift. But why not look at it? Election reform is one of the things the folks at Protect Democracy are pushing for. Uh, Protect Democracy is a uh, nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan organization that is working to prevent American democracy from uh, sliding into a more authoritarian form of government. Grant Tudor is a policy advocate for Protect Democracy. He spoke with 880's Peter Haskell. Uh, you know, Peter, there are, there are obviously kind of a number of very near-term, kind of somewhat existential, and at the very least alarming threats to American democracy. Um, you know, this summer, for example, if nothing else, the January 6th Select Committee has made plainly clear that the multi-pronged conspiracy to subvert democracy, subvert the last presidential election, um, it's not just history, but but an ongoing and, and escalating threat, right? What happened was, I think, a kind of dress rehearsal for the threats that we should anticipate coming down the pipeline, right? So we're seeing today, for example, election deniers successfully contest races to run elections across the country. You've got this big problem, but it seems like some of the solutions are small bore. What kinds of things can be done? What kind of solutions are out there to try to fix some of these problems? Yeah, well, I think, you know, maybe to to zoom out a bit, you know, even though there are kind of a host of very alarming and near-term threats to American democracy, I think it's kind of critical to to recognize that America's democratic backsliding didn't start with January 6th. It didn't start with the Trump administration, um, but instead has been a longer-term troubling phenomenon. And I think there are a number of structural causes that are working to kind of deconsolidate American democracy. Um, and I think that's the place to start, is recognizing kind of what some of those underlying issues are um, and how kind of unless and until we diagnose those deeper issues and deal with them head-on, kind of acknowledge that we're going to kind of continue to pull ourselves, struggle to pull ourselves um, back from the brink. Now, 
I'd argue that one of the most important causes uh, is an increasing kind of disconnect between our government and the popular will, which is to say at both the state and federal levels, you know, we have governments whose compositions and behaviors are really not a reflection of the people they ostensibly represent. And in some cases, they're not even kind of a remotely close approximation. Um, now, you know, that's obviously really bad news for any country aiming to be a representative democracy. And for us, I think it's one of the chief reasons we're struggling to halt our slide towards authoritarianism, because today, kind of a relatively small extremist faction, the Trump faction, is able to translate what's in fact pretty limited national support into kind of outsized political power. Now, I can kind of jump into some of the areas where I think we can start making progress um, but I think kind of properly diagnosing the issue is, is kind of one of the important places to start. When you talk about this outsized political power, it seems like part of that is gerrymandering. And we've seen it in a lot of states where if there's not an independent commission or even in New York where there was and it was thrown out, you've got these districts drawn in such a way that they are not competitive. So two things. What is the impact of that, and how do we change that? Is it, is it something that that's beyond politics that we can try to fix? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the impacts of kind of biased electoral outcomes are obviously kind of profound. The impacts of uncompetitive elections are profound. You know, the latest data show that this November um, we should expect that. 90%, more than 90% of House seats will be uncompetitive, which is to say there is going to be less than 10% of seats in which there's a real contest for, um, for a seat. Uh, and of course, that means that most folks are, are increasingly going to be disenchanted with the political process when the outcome is a foregone conclusion. Now, that said, that 90% um, of uncompetitive seats is in part the result of gerrymandering. Um, but that's kind of like saying that the source of, uh, say, climate change uh, is CO2 emissions. Well, you know, of course, in part, um, that's true. But, but what's causing those emissions? So the root cause of the problem is not just gerrymandering. The root problem is our anomalous and very outdated use of what's called single-member districts. Um, so one of the reasons I think that we're struggling to effectively combat gerrymandering is because we're really not focused on the root issue. So Peter, if you're going to give me a few minutes, I can I can dive in a bit here. Um, so it might get a little bit technical, but I'll do my best to kind of zoom out and, and keep the big picture in mind. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> all right. So uh, in all congressional districts and in, and in most state legislative districts, um, we're represented by a single official, right? That seems very normal to us, obviously. But in most advanced democracies, multiple officials represent the same district, which is to say they have multi-member districts. So why does this matter? Um, well, for at least kind of two big reasons that relate to representation or skewed representation. So first, single-member districts generate biased outcomes directly themselves without any gerrymandering in which one party's share of the seats in Congress or a state legislature kind of doesn't quite match its share of the votes. And then second, they also generate biased outcomes because they are in fact what permits gerrymandering in the first place. So let me kind of attempt to break this out. 
Um, so single member districts allow for what political scientists call an inefficient distribution of partisans. So for example, consider a state with, uh, say, four congressional districts where three are 60% Republican and maybe the last one is 80% Democratic. Now I'm obviously using a hypothetical here, but this generally reflects like a pretty common trend in the US where Democrats are kind of packed into more urban centers, in this case, that, that fourth district, and Republicans are more kind of spread out across less urban areas. So in each of those first three districts, 60% of the vote translates into a 100% win, right? If you get 60% of the vote, you take the entire district. Now had Democratic voters been spread out across more districts, they may have carried more seats. So seats aren't really a function just of votes, as we like to think, but of the spatial distribution of votes. Now you replicate this pattern enough across the country and you get an aggregate bias where one party's share of the seats is out of proportion to their share of the votes, just like gerrymandering, but kind of occurring naturally with single member districts. Okay, so Peter, you can ignore that entire explanation and instead just look to Oklahoma as an example. Um, about a third of Oklahoma is blue. One out of every three, I think, voters is Democratic. And yet the state's entire congressional delegation is red. And that's not just a gerrymandering problem. That's because in our single member system, that 30% translates into 0% representation. Now imagine instead districts in Oklahoma were each represented by three officials. Uh, in that case, it's possible for at least one official to be Democratic and then the other two Republicans. So a composition that kind of more closely mirrors the actual uh, electorate. Um, now this isn't to say gerrymandering isn't a problem, but single member districts not only produce biased outcomes regardless of gerrymandering, even in cases where independent commissions draw lines very fairly, um, they also actually enable gerrymandering in the first place. So the reason gerrymandering seems to be so pervasive here in the US and, and less so in other countries, it's not because we have more nefarious politicians uh, or, or not enough independent commissions to go around. It's because with more representatives per district, it just becomes really difficult and eventually prohibitive to draw lines that benefit just one party. So if we were serious about getting rid of gerrymandering, if we were serious about better representing the will of the people, um, I think one of the chief solutions would be to move to a more proportional multi-member system. Last word this week on concerns for democracy goes to Grant Tudor of Protect Democracy. I think we're at a we're at a um, <laughs> we're at a moment where a lot of Americans are fearful. They look around um, and see a democracy that seems to be kind of constantly on the brink. Um, and while some of those observations are certainly valid, um, you know, I still think that there's a lot of cause for hope. There's a lot of individuals who are running for offices across the country um, and who are doing so in good faith, um, who believe in democracy. Uh, there's a lot of organizations out there who are doing you know, great work on the front lines. Um, and, and I think, you know, for that reason, there's a lot of cause for hope just as much as there can be cause for concern. Our thanks to Grant Tudor from Protect Democracy. You can read all about ideas for election reform there. And we recommend the new book just out this week, The Big Truth, from our CBS friends, Major Garrett and David Becker. 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880 in New York. Thank you to Wayne Cabot and Rivka Oppenheim for their work this week. The executive producers of 880 In-Depth are Peter Haskell and Tim Scheld. Find our show on demand wherever you get your audio and the free Odyssey app. I'm Michael Wallace. Thank you for listening.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 